Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and this is the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on uh, Friday, February 15th, 2019, starting at 7.34 a.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 194th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Stephen Forrest about the concept of reincarnation and its use in astrology. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Uh, hey, Stephen, thanks for joining me today. Uh, I'm really happy to be here, Chris, finally, after years of preparation. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, we've talked on and off at different points about doing something, but I'm glad it came together finally today uh, for this early morning discussion. We're both still waking up a little bit and having our, our morning coffee, but uh, I'm excited about it. Yeah, me too. All right. So um, this is a topic that um, I've been wanting to have like a discussion about with somebody for years, and you are sort of one of the leaders, if not the leader, leading astrologer, I feel like, that talks about this topic and has been engaged in discussions about reincarnation and its use and other things surrounding that in astrology for the past few decades. So I thought you would be the best person to finally have on the show to have this discussion for the first time. Um, so maybe I should start first, though, with a little biographical information just in the off chance that any of my listeners don't know uh, who you are or what your background is. Um, how long have you been studying astrology? Oh, you know, uh, what, I have a facetious answer and then one that will make sense. I get the question a lot, and I say about 4,000 years. Okay. I like that. That's <laughs> a good way to start. joking. <laughs> right. <laughs> I actually think there's it's some approximation of the truth. But sure. my, uh, my, my first memory as a little child, a uh, little boy, was wanting a telescope so I could look at the heavens. And uh, I actually entered astrology through very much uh, what is in contemporary terms of backdoor uh, amateur astronomy. I, I built telescopes and was obsessed with the scientific model of the heavens all through uh, really from the time I was 10 or 12 years old. And I, I found that looking through telescopes, it's like I could quote the facts and the astronomy and the physics, uh, you know, reasonably well for a 12 year old. And, and yet that left something out that I, it sounded too crazy to say, but that the universe was alive. I was looking into something almost like the eyes of a friend when I would look at Jupiter or the or the moon or even you know distant galaxies. And and eventually, mm -hmm. I I just uh, individuated enough to kind of separate from science class and and allow myself to go with that intuitive feeling. Uh, meanwhile, I. Uh, I met a person I perceived as a woman. Uh, she was about 16. I was probably 13. And a woman from Germany who taught me the symbolism of palmistry. And uh, mm -hmm. in your, your palms, there's a, a plane of Venus and a plane of Jupiter. Palmistry is organized intellectually in pretty much the same chassis that astrology is arranged in. By the time I got to being about 17, my astronomical interests and my interest in palmistry kind of converged and I, I got my first astrology book. Okay. And what was the book? Uh, it was a truly awful piece of work called Astrology for Teens by a woman named Angel Starr. I, I suspect she was not born with that name. 
I, I was actually having my tonsils out at, at the time. So I was in bed for a couple of weeks, rather, rather uh, old for tonsillectomy. I was 17. Mm. Um, my mother said, can I get you a book? I said, an astrology book. She brought me that one I just mentioned. Um, and as I say, it was awful, but uh, I felt there was something to it. And so mm. I asked her for another. And then I got lucky. She gave me a, a paperback book by Joseph P. Goodovich called Write Your Own Horoscope. And I, I wouldn't call it a deep work, but but it was uh, Mercury in Aries, Mercury in Taurus, Mercury in Gemini, and so on, all, all through the planets. And I, I began to get a sense of how astrology was organized. And and then I, I never let go. I, I just read and studied obsessively for 20 years. It was interesting. Uh, progressed Mercury was making a station around the time of the story I just recounted. Hmm. And all the time it was retrograde, like 22 years or something. I'm reading astrology, but feeling there's something wrong with what I'm reading. And then Mercury stationed again and went direct. And I got the contract to write my first book, The Inner Sky. It was like almost clockwork. And wow. the first line of the first chapter of my first book was, people change. And yet one assumption runs like a virus through contemporary astrology. People do not change. And that was the key, just recognizing that that describing somebody, which was the conventional astrological practice. So here's your personality. You're a Scorpio, so you're intense, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, it's ac accurate enough, no, no quibble with it. But it was leaving out the fact that people grow. They evolve over time. And uh, that's really why I began to think of myself as an evolutionary astrologer, not evolution over thousands of years, but evolution this week as a result of a, an intense conversation you have with your partner, you know, for example. Right. So the idea that not just our personalities, but the things in our lives that are indicated by the birth chart are in a growth or process-oriented state and that nothing is fixed. and sort of determinant in a way that can't be changed for the better in some way? Exactly, exactly. Trying to, uh, uh, I did a, a lecture at Norwalk once, a very, just a keynote, a short one, that I, I, I like the title. It was Beyond Description. And, and the idea was we were attempting to bring astrology beyond the focus with describing people and into the realm of prescription you know, encouraging people and supporting them in their evolution, uh, how to become a better person. You, you've got Mercury and Scorpio, uh, you know, are you trashing all your friends with uh, weaponized psychiatric insights, you know, or are you helping your friends with, with insights that may be punchy, but, you know, support them and leave you feeling good about yourself. And I, I feel like uh, both of, we, we can observe both of those behaviors in the population of people with Mercury and Scorpio. And, and the exciting thing to me is the, the bad one can aspire to become the good one. And there's an evolutionary pathway there. And so how do we prescribe and support evolutionary steps? Sure. And what was the context? I mean, so you get into astrology, and this is like the early 60s in the time period you're talking about when you got into it, right? Late 60s, early 70s, yeah. Okay. Uh, and what 
I mean, became your primary works that you were drawing on? Like, were you drawn immediate to like works like Rudyard and sort of like highbrow astrology like that, or or what were you focused on? The ones who who spoke to me the most deeply were, uh, well, let's see, uh, Charles E. O. Carter, and you know, Scottish uh, astrologer, theosophical kind of influence, uh, Ronald Davison. Uh, mm -hmm. He he meant a tremendous amount to me. Those were probably the two most influential. I I read Rudyard, uh, Astrology of Personality, you know, page by page, underlining, and at the end of it, I still didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> right. I think that's a common experience. Somebody else was just saying that that I interviewed recently as well. Yeah, I appreciate him more now, but at at, at the time, uh, the the English Theosophists were speaking to me really the the most loudly. Alan Leo, right. Safariel, uh, probably not as important to me as uh, as the two I mentioned. And then uh, a little bit later, uh, I I I was really helped a lot by Noel Till. His uh, mm. he did a twelve book series, uh, the Foundations and Principles of Astrology, or something like that. And mm. you know, I didn't have much money in those days, but I'd save my pennies and with excitement go to the bookstore and you know buy yet another volume and and devour it. I've always appreciated him for that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, his he he has a approach to psychological astrology and counseling work, but he does it in a pretty concrete um, format or straightforward format, like all things considered for, for something yeah. that's more psychological in that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. And you mentioned Alan Leo, and that's a really important figure in terms of the discussion today because he seems like in the Western tradition, that seems to be um, a turning point where he makes some pretty overt statements that reincarnation is like a core philosophical tenant that he believed was um, crucial for astrology, and up till that point, that's not like a common statement at all that you see made typically in the Western astrological tradition. But it seems like from that point forward, starting with some of the Theosophists in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, it starts becoming more and more of a um, I don't know a common backdrop in terms of the philosophy of astrology. Although maybe it's not until Later, until your generation, that there's more of a desire from a technical approach to work out ways to actually talk about that in a more grounded sense. Do you, do you feel like that's true? Or when you found some of the astrology that you inherited when you came into the field, did it um, address that topic in a way that felt uh, sufficient to you at the time? Uh, I absolutely honor and respect uh, the the work of those people who who began to first mention reincarnation. Uh, mm -hmm. The famous uh, Newton's remark about standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, co comes to mind. Right. Uh, Alan Leo, for example, uh, as you say, uh, uh, really says we can't understand our place in the universe without grasping the principle of of evolution over lifetimes. Uh, he didn't make much of a bridge between how to look at a chart and connect it with reincarnation. He just made the point that we should do that, and uh, and that was that was a breakthrough. Uh, there's uh, of course a, a long history of belief in reincarnation in various Western cultures. It's an it's an illusion to think of it simply as an Eastern belief. The evidence that the the Celtic people tangling with the Romans, you know, ha had a belief in it, for example. 
And then the uh, Christian traditions, uh, I don't mean to bash them or anything, but uh, came to not accept reincarnation, although there was some controversy and a few little lines did actually get into the Bible that are quite suggestive of uh, a pre-existent acceptance of reincarnation. But essentially, the dominant culture uh, of the Western world for uh, 1,500 years has uh, has been Christian and, and with an official uh, turning away from the idea of reincarnation. And Western culture seemed to, uh, and Western astrology swept along with it, evolved in a way that didn't include that, just to sort of put it aside. Right, which is a little curious because we do find it in authors like Plato and like the Timaeus. There's that famous you know, story um, about basically about reincarnation and about the souls like traveling to Earth and then choosing lives on the outskirts of Earth before being born. And that's like a very prominent theme in Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophy. Although it is curious that it does, it still doesn't necessarily. That may have provided a backdrop for part of the popularity of astrology and some of the spiritual or philosophical context for astrology in the ancient world. Although we don't have like any discussions for the most part about astrology and reincarnation in any practical sense until we get to the modern period, at least in the West, with figures like Alan Leah. Yes, yeah, I, th- I think that's quite accurate. I, I don't know the the Vedic perspectives on that. How how integrated reincarnation is into the Vedic system. Obviously, the Hinduism and Buddhism are all about it. Yeah, I mean, we have in Hinduism, you know, the ideas of karma and reincarnation, and that provided a really rich philosophical backdrop for the practice of astrology, especially once natal astrology started being practiced in India from the second or third century forward, at least, and flourished there, definitely. And that's probably part of the reason for the popularity of astrology that maintained or persisted for much longer than it did in the West, where we've had so many starts and stops and breaks in the tradition. Yes. Um, so it certainly was there. And then it seems like from the Indian tradition, which then influenced theosophy, where you know Madame Blavatsky was taking different threads and philosophical ideas from a bunch of different cultures, but Hinduism was one of them. That that it sort of came in from there, perhaps into the Western tradition through theosophy. Yes, yes. So I guess that's part of the the historical context. Is that in the big scheme of things, on the one hand, we could we could agree that this is on the one hand. A relatively old idea philosophically, even in the Western tradition, but on the other hand, in the astrological tradition, a, a relatively, in the big scheme of things, new idea in the sense that astrologers have only been talking about it for the past hundred years and maybe only in the past few decades really been trying to come up with techniques or developing ways of talking about it in a more real or practical sense yeah. of what that philosophy would mean in terms of chart delineations. Exactly. We're looking at it precisely the same way. Sure. And I know once I asked you, because I was trying to research the nodes and specifically their associations with past lives and and one's future life, because I was trying to trace back when they started being associated with past lives, because I couldn't, it was relatively recently, it seemed from everything that I was reading, that they started gaining those associations. And one of the key texts seemed to be um, Martin Schulman's book, yeah. and I think I asked you once, and you said that that was one of the early books that you read, relatively early in your studies, that was kind of influential in some of your views yes. on the nodes. 
Yeah. He tended to take uh, a very dark and gloomy view of things. You know, we all look at the universe through the lens of our personalities, of course. And and I don't mean to dishonor him with that. He was tremendously helpful for me and was really, I think, the first one to 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 just very straightforwardly say the fundamental meaning of the south node of the moon is connected with your karma. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it hadn't been stated so clearly before. Right, because I, I mean, I, I was able to trace it as far back as Rudyard and like the astrology of personality in 1936, and it seems like it really starts for the most part with Rudyard, who has this little section towards the end of the astrology of personality where he's kind of looking at the symbolism of the nodes and kind of riffing on that and almost speculates at first that due to the increasing and decreasing nature that it almost has something to do with one's past life or future life and it starts out almost as a like a theory of Rudyard is there at that that early stage but then with Shulman it becomes more concrete as a, a specific delineation principle and then from there it sort of grows and blossoms into this much more elaborate sort of approach uh, that's very much centered on the nodes today yeah, exactly, exactly. The uh, uh, Stephen Arroyo should probably be mentioned in there too. You know, his his early work in the early nineteen seventies, uh, uh, overtly including reincarnation. It's uh, it's okay. an interesting evolution watching the steps. And back to Rudyard for a moment. Uh, uh, what you're saying is quite accurate. In in reading Rudyard's work, his references to reincarnation. Seem almost shy, you know. I would not characterize mm-hmm. him as a shy man, but he's uh, he's wanting to kind of keep uh, uh, intellectual defenses around his plausibility as a as a Western philosopher in roughly speaking the mainstream, and so didn't want to be flaky. But he'd mention reincarnation as uh, maybe you know a possibility. Let's be open minded, but he never really fully embraced it. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, because he was a theosophist, but he he uh, he's one of the big three theosophist, yeah. like founding astrologers of modern astrology, which are like Alan Leo and Mark Edmund Jones and Dane Rudyard. But he was yeah. the one that was the most. He read m- much more broadly than that, and he was a little bit almost more tentative in his theosophy in some some ways. It seemed like yeah, exactly, exactly. That's my point. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Arroyo. So his book was Astrology, Karma, and Transformation, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. He had yeah, two or three books huge... with three words in each of the titles, and I, I, I have juggled right. them over the years. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I hope I didn't misstate it just now. But that was an incredibly influential and popular book. So I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that because that's continuously been reprinted and has influenced a lot of astrologers. Oh yeah. Yeah, it was quite right. important to me when I was young. So, so the nodes then become a, a really important um, interpretive principle. They're already associated to some extent, some basic level, with the idea of like past and future lives. By the time you start working with them, do they become sort of the centerpiece of your astrology relatively early on, or at what stage in your career did that become much more central in terms of your approach? It. Uh... Gained momentum rather steadily from. Uh, uh, I began my astrological practice. Uh, I, you know, quit my job, day job, and became a full-time astrologer. What was your day job, by the way? I always like to hear that. Like, I I had a job as a barista, and that was my 
day job before I finally made the the leap to being a full time astrologer. So I'm always just curious what different astrologers did. You served a, a very intense cup of coffee, right? <laughs> I did. I, I yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually uh, this will sound better than it was, but uh, uh, I I worked uh, for four or five years for the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, I was uh, employed on a research project. Uh, by uh, North Carolina State University, actually. I, I went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. But when I graduated, I, I, I got a, a gopher kind of job with this, this big project. And gradually, uh, I befriended the people. They, they realized I could write well. And so I kind of became the, the staff writer. And actually, uh, this is totally out of character, but Back in the days when there was a computer in the Research Triangle uh, area of North Carolina and punch cards and all of that, I became uh, pretty fluent with a thing called SPSS, Statistical Package for the Social Sciences, and I uh, was able to uh, help them with, with data analysis. And so I, I worked for them for a long time. And it's kind of an interesting story, Chris, because I, I, I correlated uh, – this was – malfeasance of your tax dollars, you know, confessed here on the air for the first time. Uh, I, I correlated people's responses to a bunch of essentially psychological questions with, uh, with their sun signs. I, I was able to, we had their birth dates. I couldn't go further mm -hmm. than that, but I, I was able to just subdivide them into signs and cutting out all the people at the transitional days where it's you're not sure if it's the 21st or the 22nd and so on. So it was clean right. data uh, just based on sun sign. And I, I was finding things like uh, uh, here's one illustration. If you walk into a room in which some of the people are strangers and some are people you know well, do you mostly talk to the people you know well or do you try to meet people? And the cancer's number one for just talking to the people that I know well in a statistically okay. significant way. It was you know, not great insights, but it was data, you know, supporting astrology. And I was so excited about it. And I, so I quit the job. I'm going to write a book about this. It's going to change the world, you know, statistical evidence for astrology. New Evidence wow. for an Old Art was the title I gave it. And I'm collecting unemployment insurance and turning my thermostat down to 45 degrees because I couldn't afford to heat my home, you know, writing right. on, a, on an electric typewriter, knowing I was going to be a billionaire and change the world. You know, I'm 27 or something. And and uh, of course, the book was widely rejected. <laughs> <laughs> you shopped it around to publishers and nobody would take exactly, it. Exactly, to, to mainstream publishers. And one one publisher wrote back uh, uh, in rejecting the book that that uh, the, the the thrust of mainstream astrological publishing is egocentric and I expect it to remain so <laughs> I mean they're, they're not wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know I know but at, at what, anyway, what a, was too, too long a story but uh, that's what broke me from uh, working for the NIMH and uh, while I was doing that, I, I gradually began to build an astrological practice, which just skyrocketed. I, uh, I no, no, no book out, no fame, just a local hippie astrologer. But I, I, I was booked six months ahead, seven months ahead, and and making a, a good living at it. And uh, I, I never looked back after that. Right. That sounds like a pretty constructive, almost Saturn return story then if you're 27 going on 28. Yeah, it's in the lunar return, Saturn return transition time for me. Got it. 
Yeah. Um, all right. And so so astrology and and reincarnation, I mean, how big of a role is that playing in your astrology from that early stage of let's say like your first book uh, around that time frame versus how much did it become more of something that you became more confident as a core piece of your overall philosophy of astrology as time went on? It was it was huge right from the beginning is the truth okay. of it. It's interesting with uh, with the inner sky, my first book, um, my publisher, Bantam Books at, at the time, uh, pressured me to not make the book too spiritual. Uh, they uh, it was kind of almost funny in retrospect. They they didn't want me to use the word soul very much because they felt it would turn off their audience. And of course, a few years later, uh, uh, you know, we have care of the soul, and you know, it's a, suddenly everything had the word soul in it. But they wouldn't right. let me use that. Um, they wanted me to downplay the metaphysics, and I was so excited to have a contract with Bantam Books. It was all yes sir, yes sir. But by right. the the end of that book, I, I'm uh, I'm working with the chart of John Lennon, who was killed while I was writing the book, and he was important to me, and. Uh, like the last chapter of the book involves some karmic analysis of him, south node of the moon in Aries in the Placidus 12th house that I use. And uh, so I was describing him as the warrior who lost the war in a past life. And it's just one line, but the, the emotional impact and implications of being a warrior who lost a war, it, it immediately so expands into an understanding of his, uh, his anti-war activities and give peace a chance and, and all of that. So it was right there in my first book. Okay. Um, yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it's there in your first book and it's something that definitely grows and develops and becomes today. I mean, you're associated, you're primarily associated with Sort of a school of astrology or an approach to astrology that's come to be known as evolutionary astrology, and um, I was reading, rereading some of your some parts of your book, Yesterday's Sky, which came out yeah. in 2012, and you were trying to define what evolutionary astrology is, and it's kind of tough because you, on the one hand, um, you want want to try to put a definition on it of some sort, but it also sounds like you want it to be. A big tent where it doesn't necessarily have to be a specific technical approach. Although at this point, it's largely grown up or developed around your technical approach and, and the approach of your colleague Jeffrey Wolf Green yeah. and his unique technical approach. But the the two of you more or less have come to be associated with that term as evolutionary astrology. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. In terms of that, how do you define that? How do you define evolutionary astrology? Or what's what's your version of it? Let's say, I I do like the big tent approach because it is so much a work in progress, and you know new people are adding to it all the time. But essentially, mm -hmm. it's a uh, it's the collision of ancient metaphysics, essentially modern astrology, and psychology, the great masterpiece of the 20th century. So mm -hmm. psychology, ancient metaphysics, and astrology, where they converge, that's evolutionary astrology. Where a psychologist uh, in doing therapy on a person wants to know about your childhood, you know, what experiences you had growing up, and understanding how formative they are in terms of the glitches and challenges of adult life. And uh, an evolutionary astrologer will, will Happily, happily include all that, 
but uh, looks to the childhood of the soul uh, in, in terms of prior lives, assuming that unresolved past life experiences have an impact almost exactly parallel to, to being beaten or loved in your family when you're growing up. The impact is, is essentially identical. All that we're doing is expanding the scale of time to include the notion of prior lifetimes. Sure. So I guess the it's like we have that basic premise of, of natal astrology that a person is born and the alignment of the planets at the moment of their birth will describe some things about their character as well as their future life and some of the events or, or themes that might take place in it. And there's always been that question of, you know, if this can accurately describe a person's character, oftentimes in like a psychological context, there's the question of like nature versus nurture and how much a person comes into a life with certain preset character traits versus how much those character traits are developed during the course of the life through family conditioning and, and environmental factors and things like that. And part of the, the philosophical premise that you're applying to it is that some of those character traits are not just being developed from, from that, from things that are happening in this life, but that um, there's some prior life dynamics that are influencing and sort of echoing through into the, the current life, and that's reflected in the birth chart somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a it's a good point that you're making too. If we if we take a, a situation where oh, somebody has a, an Aquarian Moon conjunct Saturn, and uh, an astrologer suggests uh, uh, your mother was distant, you know, which is a possible interpretation of that, uh, and and let's say the client, oh yeah, oh that so that's why my mother was distant because my moon is in Aquarius conjunct Saturn. Well, they they correlate potentially, but you had the moon conjunct Saturn before your mother had a crack at you. <laughs> you know, if we just right. think about the order of things, the the birth chart comes first, and and uh, people's logic becomes fuzzy sometimes as they imply a, a causality as if your mother caused you to have that configuration when obviously it has to be the other way around as soon as we as soon as we wrestle with with that basic question it, it's like there there are two logically defensible roads we can go down take your pick one is astrology is a law of the universe in essentially a random universe, and the the roulette wheel stops when you happen to take your first breath, and poof, you know, there's your chart, and here's your personality. You're the ever ready bunny, and you're going to act out that personality until your batteries run down in a pointless, bleak, you know, universe. And maybe that's true. You know, intellectually, one could defend that nihilistic perspective. The only you're, you're other defining one, that's like determinism. Is that what you're defining? Well, uh, I'm, I'm essentially referring to a nihilistic view that you have your birth chart for random reasons. Let me finish the point. It'll be clearer. Okay, uh, the, the, the second possible way of making sense of the simple fact that astrology works is, is that you have your chart for a reason, You know that there's something purposeful about it. I've never met an astrologer who didn't prefer that view over the nihilistic one. But as soon as we think there's some purpose for having the chart. Well, why do you have that purpose? 
and logic demands that we are assuming pre-existent conditions. Uh, effects follow causes. So something before you were born caused you to manifest as a person with an Aquarian moon conjunct Saturn or whatever the configuration is. Now, I, I'm the first to say that's a million miles from a proof of reincarnation. I wouldn't represent it as that, but it's a proof that unless we want to accept a nihilistic astrology, we have to assume that the chart points to mysteries before the birth, that we are born with a nature for a reason. That's, that is the foundation philosophically of my passion for this kind of astrology. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think most astrologers could get on board with the idea yeah. that astrology seems to imply that there's some sense of meaning, meaningfulness and purpose to our lives and to the events that happen, and that the birth chart working at all seems to imply some sort of deliberateness about the events and the, the scope of one's life. Yes, exactly. I've never met an astrologer who disagreed with that. I know many don't like evolutionary astrology, and, and that's fine, but I've never met one that preferred a random nihilistic model of the universe. Yeah, I mean, the astrology just working in and of itself seems to immediately not just beg the question, but almost demand to force you to recognize that there's something bigger going on in the universe. And I think that even I've met astrologers who did come into astrology with a much more, um, you know, modern. I don't want to say scientific, like scientific's not a good term for it, but but broadly speaking, the idea, the scientific prevailing scientific notion that the universe is random and meaningless, and that we're like you know just specks of organic matter that are floating around on a rock, and there's no rhyme or reason to anything. Astrology yeah. seems to present this weird, sort of radically different. Opposite view that there's some meaning and purpose in our lives, and I, and I yeah. think most astrologers are on board with that. Yeah, I think so too. I uh, I just jump in with uh, your your reference, which I I sign happily that there's something bigger going on. Uh, your words. Uh, I I want to press it a, a little bit harder and say the fact that astrology works suggests there's something previous going on that there are causes that exist prior to you having a birth chart. Something Wheels were turning in, in the context of something bigger, saying something previous carries us a little bit closer to the heart of what I'm saying. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I, we, could, we could definitely agree, because one of your points is that if the birth chart is true, then it's indicating something about your life that's going to happen in this lifetime that hasn't developed yet is already indicated in the birth charts that the birth yeah. chart has some and this is another touchy subject but some predictive potential let's say about yeah. things that will take place in the life absolutely yeah uh, but also sometimes it's describing things that that were already set in motion before you were even born such as like your parents and their characters are sometimes reflected in the birth chart or family dynamics or other things like that so all yeah. astrologers for you know, centuries would definitely agree with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but your point here, and this is where the opening that you're making for the philosophical argument that you're making is that there's more than that, that those dynamics that are in place at the moment of your birth um, are coming from something else, or there has to be some other reason that some of those dynamics are put in place already in the birth chart or something exactly. that 
that is the result of rather than it just being there for no apparent reason or something like that. That's the where you're going with that argument. Exactly. Exactly. That the chart has to point to the past somehow, prior conditions that lead to the present birth chart. And and we can look at that a lot of different ways. One could one could uh uh, make a great reference to dioxyribonucleic acid, you know, potentially as, you know, somehow tied up with all of this there. It, it, it's a, I'm emphatic about it not being a proof of reincarnation, but a, a rather airtight proof that we can't make sense of astrology without assuming that the chart refers to some kind of prior conditions or situations. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I, I mean I think I can I think astrologers could accept that as a basic philosophical prince you know idea that there was something like I'm trying to think of a statement that's general enough that all astrologers could be on board with that up to this point and I'm having good, trouble good formulating luck. it but hurting yeah. cats famously <laughs> right um, but I mean your your point at this point is this is where you would bring in some of those pre-existing Long-standing philosophical traditions, and it's not just reincarnation, though. But the other one that you you bring in at this point is also the doctrine of or the idea of karma, right? Yes. Oh, yes. And and you see that as being sort of intertwined with the concept of reincarnation, so that the two maybe can be differentiated or distinguished, but they're still intertwined, so that you can't really remove one from the other. Yeah, precisely. Although the word karma is. Uh, widely widely misunderstood in in western civilization there's a a kind of judeo christian imprint on the popular use of the word karma it's an important point let me say it briefly um so somebody stole my car i guess i must have stolen somebody's horse in a past life you know the the idea that i was bad in a past life so i'm going to be punished now and that's a very Judeo-Christian judging God consequences, you know, for your actions perspective. But here's here's a, a, something much closer to the way it actually works. I stole a horse in a past life. Hey, that works. A free horse, you know, what's not to like? So in this lifetime, I'm inclined to steal a car. You know, karma is basically habit. It's a repetition compulsion. Now, justice in the universe, you know, the bad guys getting what they deserve, you see it occasionally, but it's hardly a law of the universe. We might consider the present administration, <laughs> although there are abundant examples. Uh, whereas habit, the, the dominion of habit over our, our lives and our choices is easily demonstrated. It is so difficult for a person to break out of habitual patterns, even when they're self-evidently self-defeating. So karma, karma is a law of the universe, but it's it's habit, not not uh, not crime and punishment. I mean, that's a that's a really important conceptual distinction that you're making because that then probably becomes the entire rationale for how you're able to connect past lives and reincarnation with what's reflected in the birth chart for this life is that if yeah. if you're assuming that um that the habits and that the things that a person will tend to gravitate towards doing in this life in terms of their personality and their actions are partially the result of repeated habits that they've built up over past lives and that's your yeah, your definition exactly. of karma then that 
right there almost becomes the like primary underlying metaphysical principle that's operating in your in your philosophy it, it would seem like bullseye exactly right i can take it a little bit further um all all the planets as you know uh have have nodes you know south nodes north nodes and uh, other than the sun of course and and uh they are those are interesting topics but they're not particularly central in in my work i've fiddled with them a little bit but it's the nodes of the moon that that play the critical role. Now, this is actually the a key insight because ask any any astrologer, you know, so what does the moon mean? And you're going to hear emotions, feelings, you know, attitudes, you know, words like that will 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 certainly arise. You can write a book about the moon, of course, but but uh, that that that's the heart of it. So here here's the key. Here's where this goes. That. When we die, the trauma of death and rebirth typically erases what we might call our mercury memories. You know, so you believe in reincarnation. Okay, what was your what was your name in your last lifetime? People shrug their shoulders. You know, we don't remember the facts, so we forget our past lives. A simple statement, but here's the level at which that's not true. At the emotional level, we remember them perfectly. The memories of the heart are robust and they survive the trauma of death and rebirth. Uh, just to make this alive for you, there's a, a, a little boy, seven years old, uh, waking up his family every night with screaming nightmares that he can't remember. Everybody thinks kid's a little crazy. Ten years ago, he died in a firefight in Fallujah, you know, in Iraq, in a state of absolute horror, you know, people are trying to kill him, he's trying to kill people. And and then three years later, he's reincarnated. And he doesn't remember Iraq, but he remembers fear. And so an attitude of fear pervades his life. And he's inclined towards hypervigilance, paranoia, nervousness, suspicion, insecurity, and it's kind of beyond reason. It has nothing to do with the facts of his life. But the attitude conditioned by the unresolved trauma in a prior existence is carried forward into the present life. Now, we could look at that as uh, one illustration of that phenomenon in the technical language of astrology would be an Aries south node, you know, with its war and conflict symbolism, which leads me to reference the north node of the moon, Libra in this case, and and that the evolutionary future is uh, trying to calm down, trying to find peace, serenity, equilibrium. Now, this uh, elaborates into the full text of Yesterday's Sky, which I will not repeat here, <laughs> but uh, where, is, where is Mars if Aries is the ruler of your south node? Is, is, is Uranus square the nodal axis? Is, uh, you know, uh, how does it fit into the rest of the chart? It's not just the nodes, but it's centered on the nodes. And the south node is the emotional habit, the momentum of emotional habit from unresolved traumatic prior life experiences. That's it in a nutshell. Okay. Beautiful. And I, I mean, at this point, th though, we come to one of the like central issues um, that I've already always run into with this, which is that I actually came into astrology through some New Age books that were 
um, by a regressive hypnotist, and it was talking about past lives, and that was my entry point into astrology. So that I came into the field and found websites like astro.com and started casting my birth chart yeah. under the premise that I thought when I was going to get into astrology, I could find specific information about past lives and find out who I was in a past life and what I did. And um, one of the things that surprised me though that I didn't expect was when I learned astrology, it was much more um, general and psychological in its orientation and the ability to make specific statements that it was more archetypal in nature and the ability to make specific statements was not typically um, you know, very well developed or it was not precise in the way that you almost expect or you assume astrology might be before you get into it. And that was the case even less so when it came to the ability of astrologers who did talk about past lives to talk in specifics. And that's something, you know, although you're using that story about the little boy from Fallujah, that's not necessarily something you would sort of attempt to describe in detailed terms based on a birth chart, right? More or less right. There, there's a line I I, I will use when I'm sitting with a client. It's a, it's a little funny, but it makes a serious point. I, when I, I get to the reincarnational part, I say, I'm going to make a very bold claim here. I'm going to tell you a true story about a past life of yours. And of course, their eyes get a little wide. And then I follow it with a second remark. But in this true story, I am going to invent all of the facts. <laughs> and, and of course, people laugh, but then I make the point that uh, any novel worth reading is full of made-up facts, but somehow it, they tell you truth about life. So these are, are parables. I do, I do not claim that we can see you died in a firefight in Fallujah, but I do claim that we could see it sure looks like you experienced violence and imaged yourself as a victim in the context of the violence. And I can say that, and that's clear enough. But so I can speak to your heart as well as your intellect. I'm going to tell you a story, and, and that engages the heart. So I always try to be very clear about that. Sure. I mean, how do you know, or how do we know then that in describing that and describing the emotional dynamics of the person and some things that are are clearly because they're in the birth chart are clearly prominent themes for them in this life? How do we know for sure that those are themes that they definitely experienced in in a previous life versus just being things that somehow developed more locally, like in in their current life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a fair fair point, and and ultimately, uh, we we cannot be sure. It would be possible that some traumatic experience that did not have a prior life uh, precedent uh, arose early in this life, or even contemporary in this life, and leaves a mark on the soul. Uh, we have to be wide open to that. I mean, because that's something you're addressing, obviously, in your consultations as somebody with a psychological astrologer background, just to begin with, is you're not just focused on past lives, but you're, you know, genuinely, I'm sure, curious and talking about the person's early life and their formative experiences. Yes, exactly, exactly. And the, the, there's such a, in, in my practice, I, I mean, I'm, I know I'm, I'm known as the guy who talks about your past lives, you know, in the mm-hmm. astrology conferences and so on. Uh, right. in, in my my daily life, my my serious teaching, 
it's very much in the present tense. You know, we really, okay, here's, here's this stuff that you have. You, I think it came from a past life. Who knows where it came from, but here it is. It's on your plate. Uh, this is what it looks like when you're crazy, you know, and here's, here's maybe a better way of handling that, you know, present tense. And, and so the focus is very much on supportive counseling in the moment rather than an amazing magical mystery tour of your past lives. I, I, I should be clear about that because I, I know the reputation that, that surrounds me is it kind of misses that point a lot of the time. Sure. Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, that's probably what people look for or or think about. And sometimes like I did when I came into the astrological community, and for some reason I didn't come across and, and didn't actually stumble across your work or the other evolutionary astrologers' work until years later. Otherwise, I would have been very much interested in that and, and would have, you know, dived right into that um, at that stage. Uh, but um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to make that point because I was always interested and I found your because you've actually been in the front lines of not just having this as part of your personal philosophy, but also sometimes in the place of defending it to other astrologers. And sometimes there's been debates in the community about if one adopts this philosophy, like what's ethical versus what's not ethical in terms of consultations or whatever, since astrologers are always both debating and, and sometimes squabbling over sometimes very important issues and other times just kind of squabbling with each other. Um, but I liked, I've always appreciated, and even though I, I'm not somebody, as I grew and developed more as an astrologer that came to focus a lot on, on ideas of karma and reincarnation as part of my philosophy, I always respected the way that you talked about and engaged with in that sort of debate and presented your philosophy not as something that was very dogmatic, but as something that seemed more reasonable and that you were trying to be very reasonable about it in the way that you were presenting it and in the way that you were sort of putting yourself forward as a professional astrologer at the same time with the underlying goal to help people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's what it's all about. Helping people, you said so much there, and I, I really yeah, sorry I, for rambling. Yeah, well, no, it was it was terrific. I, I mean, it positively, I, it's, uh, I, so many ways I could respond to this. Uh, one of them, uh, the idea, the, the sort of wistful idea that perhaps you would become my student ten years ago. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but that honestly, because there was a that that would have probably, in all honesty, happened if I had found you in the early 2000s. But I ended up going to Kepler, yeah. and of course, getting interested in ancient astrology through Demetra. Uh, but you know, in another another lifetime. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I was, I, I'm feeling the. The the Dharma, to use the Buddhist word, the rightness of of you you being in uh the world you're in now in, in Hellenistic astrology, creating the the renaissance of of all of that, which I, I do not claim to understand, but I, I have an instinctual respect for for those traditions, intelligent humans, you know, working out this system before they had clocks. I mean, it just blows my mind. My God, you're able to help people as astrologers without clocks. I, I, you know, I'm in awe. That's, that's brilliant, you know, to have figured that out. And sure. so uh, I, 
I, you know, like in in my garage, I have all of those, uh, you know, th- those paper bound books that came out when when the three Robs were were first, you know, doing uh, Project Hindsight and all of that. I never claimed to have understood mm-hmm. them. So you're one of the astrologers that supported the project in the 1990s. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, literally two or three boxes of of, of the, those books. But mm. uh, uh, you know, there's there's a difference between having a book and reading a book, you know, and a difference between reading a book and understanding the book. Yeah, and uh, this is uh, again uh, the word wistful comes to mind uh, when when I was a young astrologer. I was obsessed with reading astrology. I, I, I have a feeling a lot of parallels between you and I, you know, in our 20s. So just can't get enough of this stuff, diversity, different approaches. And, and then as my practice took off, I've had, a, I've had a tiger by the tail for 40 years, you know, basically with the teaching and the writing and the clients. And, and I work a, typically a 50 or 60 hour week just kind of keeping up with everything. Right. Are you still booked out like a year in advance with consultations or how far is it? I do I have my local face-to-face work, which I try to protect, and then recorded readings, which I send. The face-to-face work is about two years out. The recordings are about four years. It's it's wow. gotten insane. And uh, people, all my kind of conservative side friends will say, just raise your fees, you know, uh, but I'm already 350 bucks, you know, for a, a two hour reading. I don't want to be higher than that. You know, I, I don't want to become that exclusive. So it's, uh, my, my strategy for dealing with this is to eventually die. <laughs> sure. That's a good, that's a good approach. I, I like that. I, I, it's, it's reliable and I'm a Capricorn. I, you know, I, I like to be reasonable. So, uh, yeah. So the, the, uh, the point I'm making is is uh, this renaissance in in various forms of ancient astrology, Hellenistic and literally Renaissance astrology, and so on, has been happening right under my nose, and I I just haven't had time to to dive in and learn it. And uh, I, I I love having the opportunity to say this because the fact that I've not incorporated those techniques could be construed as me resisting or rejecting or something like that. But I'm very much a big tent guy with astrology. I, I, in fact, the, a, a mystery beyond the capacity of the human intellect to wrestle with it is why the heck does Hellenistic astrology, Vedic astrology, evolutionary astrology, etc., why do they all work You know, when they contradict each other in so many ways? And it's, I, I know there there are people who want the universe to be very three dimensional, push and shove, Isaac Newton, you know, clockwork, and and they often get very angry about this. Making fun of the Vedic astrologers would be one contemporary illustration. Um, not me. I, I just sit here in awe of you know, oh my God, what is this thing that we're doing when so many languages seem to contradict each other and yet point to the same truth. Wow. Right. And I was thinking about this recently, though, because sometimes you, although you're, I, I would love the way that you formulate and you're often very open to other approaches and things, you sometimes do have, you know, strong opinions about certain things, especially in astrology when it comes to things that you think might be harmful or problematic in a consulting setting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I often wondered, though, 
I almost feel like you might have a, a, a more of a harder edge to you at this stage in your career if you hadn't had some of the run-ins that you've had with debates in the community where people have attacked your own approach and tried to criticize it, and some of that may have made you different at this stage in your career than you would have been if you never reached and had any of that opposition. Like, Is that true? That's just yeah. a speculation that I had recently, but I don't know if- Yeah, it's very true. It's very true. So uh, uh, my Scorpio to yours, not to ignore the elephant in the living room, so to speak, uh, the, the war between Glenn Perry and, and myself was rather famous many years ago. And uh, he, he set up, uh, my opinion, obviously, he set up a, a straw man and he attacked it very successfully. The straw man, Stephen Forrest says, you can look at a chart and tell people explicit details about their past lives. And hey, nobody can prove him wrong. He can't prove himself right. So it's bogus. Now, I never said that. And anybody who did say you could see specific past life details is, is wrong. Glenn was absolutely right about it. But he convinced a large part of the astrological community for a while that that's what I was doing. And it, it hurt really badly. And around that time, my work was taken off in a huge way. My apprenticeship programs, you know, couple of thousand people have passed through them by now. Uh, I, I, I just left the community. You know, it, it just wasn't worth being there and dealing with that kind of negativity anymore. I didn't attack the community, but, but I was essentially, uh, I don't want to say driven out of it. I chose to leave it. I just didn't need that in my life. It was more of a drain than a positive thing. And recently, uh, they, they've uh, stood up to him. And uh, I think that's that's been very healthy. My respect for the community's ability to take care of itself has uh, increased enormously in the last year or so because of all that. Right, because you used to be much more involved in the community, and in the late '90s and early 2000s, you're actually yeah. involved in some of the organizations that were putting together ethical guidelines for yeah. astrologers for what was like appropriate versus not appropriate, especially in the context of consultations. But that became the focal point of sort of the dispute to a certain extent was was evolutionary astrology and reincarnational thinking as applied in an astrological consultation appropriate or the charges that were being laid against it were that it was unethical somehow in some way exactly glenn uh glenn perry had written uh, uh actually pretty good ethical guidelines for 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 esar kind of put it out there and but it included a uh, uh, the idea that references to prior lives were unethical unless we said kind of for entertainment purposes or speculative purposes or something like that. And uh, so you'd have to like completely disavow it basically in each consultation and then proceed to talk about it and do it. Exactly. And so uh, I was commissioned, it was, let's see, Dorothy Oja and uh, Mary Bean and Mark McDonough and Matt Carnicelli and myself, the five of us, for f probably three or four years uh, on the phone constantly re rewriting you know, the, these various uh, ESAR ethical guidelines to, to come up with a, with a code that, that allowed various astrological practitioners and traditions to feel comfortable and included in the community 
rather than condemned because they weren't doing modern uh, psychological astrology in a very narrow way. Right. So you guys are trying to be inclusive of like all astrologers and all the different practices and everything and create an ethical code, which this was a big deal because it didn't exist up to yes. this point. The astrological organizations were just now developing ethical guidelines uh, and this you were there at the ground level working on this. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's still very important to me. Uh, I uh, mention my strong opinions sometimes. Uh, somebody somebody uses a different house system than me. God bless us one and all. I I, I have an opinion about what works for me, but I, I don't need to force that on anyone. But when an astrologer hurts somebody, you know that crosses a line. Uh, Uranus is about to enter your seventh house. You're going to get a divorce. You know that kind of astrology. That's damaging, you know, because Uranus enters somebody's house, seventh house, and there probably is a need to, if you're in a marriage, to renegotiate it, make a little more Uranian space for yourself, you know. So there probably will be some tension, which a, a good astrologer can cast light on. But then an unethical fortune telling astrologer said, you will get a divorce. And it kind of rings true, you know to a person who is facing uncertainty and change in the marriage. And so it, insidiously, such a prediction can be destructive. I know you, 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 when we did that uh, panel at the last UAC, and you, you know, is, is prediction killing astrology? I, right. I, I think it was kind of a sweet moment for me in that uh, I've always liked you, you know, but I haven't known you that well. And I was thinking, oh, oh, this, this is going to be when, when me, me and Chris, you know, we were really going to get into it. And, and I found that there was nothing you said that I was uncomfortable with. And I kind of had the feeling that there was nothing I said that really made you terribly uncomfortable. I may be wrong about that, but that- uh, No, it was great. It was a great discussion. Yeah, I thought so. And, and that- uh, the, the the ethics uh, underlying the practice of Hellenistic astrology or evolutionary astrology, the, the fundamental ethical principles are, are are human. They're not astrological. You know, first do no harm. You know, uh, it would be a good place to start. I right. I can't imagine any conflict about that. Yeah, I mean you're. A recurring theme in your astrology and in your philosophy of counseling astrology is that you really don't like um, overly specific. You really focus on archetypally archetypal statements of astrological placements, which are broad enough that they do not create an overly like constraining delineation of a specific prediction of an immutable result that will happen in the person's life, no matter. What they do and doesn't leave any room for alternative outcomes or for for them to to do anything differently, and you really push back against that very strongly as something yeah. that you object to. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a a core uh, theoretical reason for that that uh, it's in working with uh, let's say transits. You know, I might say that it is your fate. So I rarely use the word, but it is your fate to experience certain archetypal fields, certain questions, and certain possibilities now. And uh, that's not general. I can be quite specific uh, about those archetypal fields, etc. Mm. How you're going to respond to them is a function of your consciousness 
rather than than something we can attribute completely to the planets. That that uh, life as we experience it is at the interface of consciousness and these astrologically determined archetypal fields. Uh, we cannot leave out either factor to understand how life works. Sure, and, and so that's why you'll delineate something like you were just mentioning Uranus transiting through the seventh house and, and give a list of different scenarios or psychological or character manifestations as possibilities, but ultimately leave it up to them and, and say that it's up to them explicitly yeah. so that the delineation ultimately is, is open-ended in some sense rather than, yeah. than overly specific and, and predictive in a, in a narrow sense. Yeah, exactly. Put the responsibility on the client rather than on the planets. You know, there it is in a sentence. Sure. So it's it's almost ironic then that you were accused of doing the opposite, which is making overly specific statements about the past um, rather than the future. And yeah. I could see then why perhaps you would push back very strongly against that, since in some ways, like a core underlying thing of your astrology is to talk about it archetypally and in, in broad terms rather than in overly specific ones. And that's true not just of your statements about the future, but also in terms of your statements about the past. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There, the uh, It was an astute observation and the irony was not lost on me that I wound up being uh, sort of hoisted by my own petard, but against my will. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but despite that, and despite you being I don't want to say run out of the community might be stating it a little strongly, but on some level, I'm sure you felt that way because you weren't necessarily there weren't tons of people like rushing to your defense at that point. Um, but instead, you were having to to sort of fight some of that battle or defend yourself on your own, and so you yeah. ended up pulling back from the community. So that by the time I was actually starting to get involved in the astrological community. I had never known that you had been involved in the astrological organizations as much as you had because you had pulled back by that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in your in pulling back, you ended up focusing your energy on your um, your practice and on your teachings of students and on writing. And evolutionary astrology has become one of the the most dominant schools. I feel like in modern contemporary astrology at this point yeah. over the course of the past couple of decades. Yeah, definitely. There was uh, uh, one thought uh, or perception I had at the time was that the uh, this is a little bit apples and oranges, but my apprenticeship program, if we count that by the number of people who who attended and kind of been through it and gotten certified, my mm -hmm. apprenticeship program was actually considerably larger than ESAR, you know, and it's it's not a not a competition. But when I, I uh, the, the the general suck out of my life connected with with all the politics in ESAR, I, I began to ask questions. Given the fact that a day is just twenty four hours long, you know, about why am I why am I here? You know, why is it important for me to be heard here when I I can work much more efficiently and and be heard by a wider audience by putting my energy elsewhere? I, I was not comfortable with that. Because the organizations are important, you know. I, I really never want to come across as being against them, 
but uh, I'm a sensitive guy and it was just getting too painful to be there. You know, it's a, it was a very personal decision. It, it, it was, it sucked, you know, I, I didn't like it anymore. And so I, sure. I, I stopped going. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's important because it was an interesting and critical um, debate in the astrological community and, and a tense one, but it, it was an interesting one in terms of um, probably providing a framework for how other types of debates might go about different things in the future. And hopefully, as a community, like learning something about it, about how to do them constructively versus not. And sometimes you run into to issues like that that can be really delicate and really hard to resolve. Um, but sometimes when astrologers feel that they um, disagree with another astrologer, sometimes there's almost too much of a quickness to label what they're doing as unethical or there's a tendency yeah, exactly. to want to jump to that sometimes yeah. a little bit too quickly and not see the sort of genuineness of the other person's approach. Um, which can sometimes be important if if they're at least approaching it from the perspective of not harming the client and of genu genuinely having the client's best, in, uh, you know, um, not intentions but their best needs in mind. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the orbit of ethics, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, if uh, you know, whole sign. Houses are not as ethical as Placidus houses. You know, it's like give me a break. You know that that that's not an ethical question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, astrologers immediately jump there because they usually develop the idea that like my approach that I've developed works and therefore must be true. And therefore, if somebody's doing an approach that's different from mine. Significantly, what they're doing must not be true. It's sometimes their automatic yeah. assumption, but sometimes that starts leading into a dangerous area um, when they start going that route. Because then, if it's wrong, then it might be dangerous and it might be unethical and, and yada yada yeah. yada. Um, instead yes. of sometimes just comparing and contrasting views and trying to understand genuinely, like where the other person is coming from. Exactly. Exactly. Very well said. Sure. So, um, back to that question about though the the ethics um, and the practical application of applying the philosophy or philosophical concept of reincarnation to astrology. Um, you're applying it in a general archetypal sense and assuming that the present life dynamics are carried over, at least in part, from prior lifetimes. But yeah. one of the it seems like one of the rules that you're bringing along with that that maybe you're stating somewhat strongly is that it must be interpreted um, archetypally speaking or broadly speaking, and not necessarily in specifics in terms of making specific statements. I mean, do you go so far as to make that an ethical rule or guideline, or how strongly do you actually phrase that in terms of of those within your school? Very, very strongly that uh, we we would never leave consciousness out of the equations, period, and that sure. consciousness uh, will determine the concrete manifestation of any astrological configuration. Uh, the, the configuration offers you a menu, and then consciousness will choose what it's going to eat off of that menu, so to speak. Obviously, sure. it's hard work and and it's not just a question of pointing out the smartest choice but as we struggle with our lives we 
we can make higher and higher responses to to these things. Sure, and and I understand that that's true for future this life predictions that haven't happened, but for past life ones, to the extent that there's the assumption that that's already taken place, does that and and the element of choice is is taken out of that since it's unnecessary yeah. since it's something in the past. Does that allow you then to narrow or collapse that down a little bit so that maybe you're more willing to make a more specific past life statement um, in narrowing down the archetype than you would be like a future prediction? Yeah, yeah. Your your exact phrase to narrow it down a little bit was is is absolutely could have come out of my own mouth. Narrow it down a little bit, not all the way. But here's here's the the, the, the very specific filter through which we look at the South Node dynamics. We assume that something went wrong there. We the the simple notion that it wouldn't be your unresolved karma had it gone right. You know, so, so you you treat the south node as a sort of not as a sort of deficiency in some sense. Yeah, uh, it, it's a damage to our attitude would be a very simple way of putting it. That that mm. arose typically as a result of circumstances that uh, where um, well, when I'm teaching this formally, I say the south node unresolved karma. There are four possible mix and match frameworks. One. Something you got wrong in a past life. No shortage of mistakes, but they have consequences. Two, something you got right in a past life, but sustained damage in the process of getting it right. Sometimes our virtues come at a terrible price. You know, you did the right thing at great expense. Uh, the, the third possibility, tragedy struck you. Nobody's fault, not yours, not anybody else's, but uh, you're sailing across the ocean to the new world and the ship sank. You know, that's going to affect your attitude in the present life. You're afraid present ships will sink. Nobody's fault, but there it is damage. Fourth, evil, evil. There's a darkness in the world, and, and when evil touches you, in, in any way, coming or going, you partook of it or you were a victim of it, that's going to leave a mark on your soul too. So the, those four, and it's possible to mix them up, and you know, it means maybe all four are activated, but every one of them contains uh, a negative or damaging component. And so we look at the south node, uh, like any symbol in astrology, spectrum of possibilities, but we filter them in, in a bias towards the, the negative. And so we narrow it down a little bit. Maybe we narrow it down a lot, but ultimately, I'm gonna I'm gonna make up a true story about your past life. You know, I, I repeat that again. I don't know what the facts are, and and there would be different possible interpretations of any nodal configuration, just like in any present chart. But we can we can be specific enough to be helpful, and that's really the bottom line. Right, and and because astrology ultimately is archetypal, and and reading positions in the birth chart is an an exercise in symbolic reasoning and like broad mm -hmm. archetypal interpretation. What you're what you're seeing in the chart is archetypal dynamics, and sometimes that allows for like a range of specificity, but it's still not. You're not looking at the chart like looking into a crystal ball yeah. and seeing exactly what a person's past life was, and like. How old they were and like what color their eyes were, or something like yeah. that. Just in the same way that when you're 
looking at astrology for the future to, to to make broadly speaking let's say a prediction you're not looking into a crystal ball and seeing exactly what's going to happen in 30 years in the person's life and and who exactly they're going to be dating or what have you right right exactly exactly it's it's sad how how many astrologers are are obsessed with the crystal ball model and mm-hmm. uh, having been in this field for so long I, I it's one of those laugh or cry situations where you know, somebody makes a prediction. You know, this is what's going to happen. The stock market is going to hit this number, and and they've they've made two hundred such predictions in the past. None of them work, and then they get one that works, and they write an article and you know, tooting tooting their incredible ability to see the future, and they got it right. But we we look at 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 the rigid astrologers who claim to be able to see the future. I know what's going to happen to you. I know what choices you are going to make. Those astrologers, and we look objectively at their results, and we find we can't dismiss them entirely. You know, there's there's something going on. They'll be right sometimes. A little more than chance would dictate, but they sure are wrong a lot. You know, humans make monkeys out of those astrologers with with creativity and intelligence and love and charity and you know all all the basic virtues. You know, we can make a monkey out of a, the crystal ball astrologer. Sure, and I know that's one of your your hobby horses about Amen. astrology and and prediction and. Uh, I have to push back a little bit in saying, I mean, surely even even you and your approach recognize the predictive potential, even in broadly archetypal terms, of things like the Saturn cycle, like the thirty-year Saturn cycle, and looking at the hard aspects of Saturn and watching those dynamics play out over and over again, and being able to at least anticipate. Combined with just seeing the astrology and the the trajectory of like a long term cycle like that and its natal position in the chart, with understanding the person's history and and life trajectory up to this point by talking with them, and that the union of those two things of like the person's astrological cycles with knowledge of their life can sometimes give you the ability to make reasonable inferences about where they're headed in the future. Oh yeah, yeah. I have no no trouble uh, accepting that. I loved your your last term there, reasonable inferences, right? And w- with knowledge of astrology and knowledge of the person and his or her history, which is can be very helpful. Past often predicts the future, and and throwing in astrological knowledge, we we can often infer what is likely to happen. And mm-hmm. and 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 it turns out to be accurate. I I'd never argue against that. Um, I I just always prefer to leave room in the equations for higher possibilities. The the person who has always screwed up in a delusional fashion, and uh, Neptune is about to conjunct their son. You know, okay, well, <laughs> get ready for another delusional screw up. You know. If I had to guess what was going to happen, you know, my life depends on it. That's what I would predict, and and probably I'd live to predict again the next day. But in my practice, that's not what I want to do. What I want to do is sit with that person and say, "You have a history of delusional behavior, and you, you know, the perfect storm is setting up for you again here. And be careful, you know. I think maybe you can do better this time. I'm not saying you will." But I'm just saying I don't know what you're going to do. But your future is in your hands, and 
and here's a higher possibility with this Neptune. You need to turn that energy into, for example, some kind of spiritual practice. Now, I'm not going to hand them Jehovah's Witness literature, but just, just to speak very simply, the idea that this energy, it is your fate that this energy is going to manifest in your life now. And your history suggests this is how it's going to manifest. But can we get a word in for other possibilities? And here we can prescribe a, a different way of 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 rising to this and handling the energy differently. Well, one one more quick comment here. I I love and when I'm teaching or even doing clients' work, I I love to uh, quote the most basic principle in physics, which is energy can be neither created nor destroyed, only changed in form. You can't put science into English more effectively than than that sentence. And astrology is ultimately part of that scientific universe. We just haven't stretched our paradigms enough to see it. And so the energy of your chart has been created. There it is. You're standing there. And so it can't be destroyed. The one thing the symbols in your chart cannot do is nothing. They can't go poof. You know, I'm not going to bother you anymore. They're, they will manifest, but they can be changed in form. And what changes the form of the manifestation is consciousness or potentially the lack of consciousness. You know, I, I never want to come across this kind of new agey happy face, you know, Pluto's conjuncting your son, lucky you, you know, I, I don't want to play games like that. But I, I always want to honor this this God-given power to work with these energies. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and and that actually raises a question. I mean, to what extent are you ever concerned? Or I, I, I concerned sometimes that in the um, desire to be empowering, sometimes by leaving people the option and introducing ideas like levels of consciousness, having some dictating some power over the individual having powered or being empowered to choose the outcome of certain transits or certain placements in their life in the future that sometimes it might accidentally do the the opposite and make them feel if they still end up having a bad experience from a transit or a natal placement that it's somehow their fault and that if they had only been more evolved or wiser or something that that negative event wouldn't have happened to them so that accidentally it ends up being not what was intended in terms of being helpful or giving the person a greater sense of empowerment, but instead maybe makes them feel um, you know, insu insufficient in some way? Yeah, it's a, that's a very serious point. No, I, I respect it. Um, I, I strive, of course, like any, any good astrologer to first do no harm, but I'd be the first to say that this Deeper kind of astrology is very high voltage work, and you know it's right in people's faces. You know, here's your journey, here's your craziness, here's your your soul, and I, I I'm I'm sure I've hurt people. You know, I'm I'm absolutely confident that that the error and the danger you describe that I'm guilty of it. Um, my only defense would be that. It taken in as a body, I think my work has been far more helpful than than harmful. But sure. it's I think it's impossible to hold the mirror of truth before someone, and and guarantee that they're not going to use it in a in a self sabotaging way. Sure, and I was just saying that in terms of um, 
I mean, do you feel like sometimes there are events that are truly outside of the person's control and it's not necessarily a result of them not doing the right thing that something, let's say, un- unpreferable or, or tragic or you know, hard occurred or happened to them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That That's part of the reality. And we'll find, uh, oh, like, uh, you know, Pluto transits, progressions through the eighth house, uh, scorpionic uh, involvements, you know, will will often correlate with with tragedy in, in a person's life. Gosh, uh, the, uh, Pluto, uh, I'm a middle Capricorn. Pluto has just finished crossing my son, and uh, I lost my mother, uh, 96 years old. We loved each other. It's about as good as it gets, but you know, there's a death, you know, coinciding with Pluto. And and then uh, then this is this one it actually hurts me a little more. My my uh, my nephew, the nearest thing to a son I've ever had, uh, my sister's son, killed himself. You know, shot himself and. And, uh, you know, there's Pluto crossing my son. And, uh, uh, you know, my consciousness uh, has some power in terms of how I absorb that fact, how I field it. Uh, uh, do I decide the universe is horrible and bleak and dreadful and we should all shoot ourselves? You know, it should be a possibility. Or do I, do I find uh, forgiveness in my heart towards my nephew for what he did to himself, but also to our family, you know? Uh, these are these are hard questions, and it, it was my fate, and I, I'm not totally adverse to using the word, you know? It was my mm-hmm. fate to experience that loss in, in that moment, that Plutonian tragedy, but my freedom lies in how I respond to it. Does that sure. make sense to you? Yeah, definitely, um, in terms of internally. I mean, do you have any concerns about People using, um, like sometimes in India, for example, there's been drawbacks sometimes with concepts of karma and reincarnation, and perhaps um, it being used to reinforce negative conditions in the person's life, or, or for a person to think that if they're experiencing something bad, it's that they deserve it from something they did in a past life or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That's that's toxicity. Yeah, I would I would never want to. Leave leave a person with that kind of impression, and I, I think that there's a you're, pr- you're probably sensing there's a, a a fairly elaborately defined philosophical and ethical basis to evolutionary astrology, and I've been you know I wake up in the morning doing it, and so the, those principles I don't have to think about them they're they're implicit in, in the work, and and they're kind of self correcting relative to. Uh, the you know excessive guilt or sense of doom or anything like that. There's always always an emphasis on on the on the higher ground and how to get there. And I, I should add, quite relevant to what we've been talking about, uh, here's a, a a line I I love to use. You know, the birth chart, your birth chart, it's the soul's lesson plan. You know, and I immediately smile because like everybody hears that they nod their heads. You just nodded your head. It's like, mm-hmm, yeah, the soul's lesson plan. It's it's almost a cliche. And then I say, let's look at that rigorously. Why do you need lessons? And the answer is never particularly flattering. You know, you need lessons where you're ignorant. You don't need to learn something that you'll already know. Therefore, if the birth chart is the soul's lesson plan, the birth, your birth chart. Here, here's the corker. Your birth chart 
represents everything wrong with you, you know, and all the new age people hit the ceiling. And then I finish the sentence and how to fix it. Everything mm -hmm. wrong with you and how to fix it. To me, in one sentence, that, that's about the most rigorous description of, of how astrology has presented itself to me. There's humility yeah. and a triumphant affirmation of human potential built into it. Yeah, I mean that's really the the humanistic side of astrology of like mid to late twentieth century astrology and how you've merged that. I mean, your astrology really is the merging of uh, late twentieth century humanistic psychological astrology with the philosophical and spiritual and religious ideas of the theosophical tradition from the early twentieth century and the full like union and synthesis of those two threads. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, I had a oh, brilliant. Oh, it, I had an interesting uh, conversation. It was actually recorded with uh, Robert Hand, you know, who's uh, a very very different astrologer, but he's been a good friend of mine for a long time. And and uh, he he was making the, the point that you know, it, it reference to traditional forms of astrology about how uh, by the 19th century uh, astrology had been so drained of its soul and its essence and down to its bones and and uh I, I i have no argument against that but i said we oh this little river of kind of a few core astrological principles managed to survive into the 20th century in beleaguered form and and then the river of modern psychology joined that trickle. And then the the integration of more or less Eastern metaphysics with mainstream Western thinking, another river. And so modern astrology, uh, at least evolutionary astrology, uh, was revitalized by integrating the, the ancient metaphysics and the psychology. And and it became something new. Astrology reinvented itself, and and so I was uh, honoring his point about all the losses, but I also want to put it in the context of of something new has been created. You know, based on the little trickle from the past, and and not to say one is better than the other, but uh, let's. Uh, well, I guess that's the whole point. I'm saying, Rob, don't say the old stuff is better than the new stuff. You know. The, the new stuff has its own pedigree and it's a little bit different. And astrology has been incredibly resilient through history and reinventing itself over and over again. And uh, it's happening now. The amazing thing now is that instead of one mainstream kind of astrology, we now have astrologies. You know, you go to an astrology conference and and I don't know if this is good or bad. You know, I, I go to a, a Hellenistic lecture. I don't know what they're talking about, you know, and, and or I go to a Vedic one. I don't know what they're talking about. I'm not proud of that, but you know, it's it's just the truth. When when I was a younger astrologer, I go to a conference and everybody's speaking more or less the same language. So I, I had a good basis for arguing with people. Now I can't even argue <laughs> anymore right. because I don't know enough. We have this uh, Tower of Babel 
phenomenon. At first, it worried me a lot. It's like, you know, how can we ever have a code of ethics or or standard licensing of astrologers, if that were a good thing, because nobody can agree on what astrology is. And for a while, I was uh, upset about it. And now I, it just kind of puts a smile on my face. You know, it's like, let's surf the waves of chaos. You know, this is something we, we can't control. And, you know, hallelujah, God bless us all. And onward through the fog. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean it is something I'm curious to see how that works out over the next few decades yeah. as we have all these new traditions and the field is much more diverse than it's been yeah. maybe at any other time in history and what will come out of that and and what sort of will there be a synthesis of that or or will there be just a continuing and expanding diversity of some sort? Yeah. Um I guess we'll we'll find out at some point. Um, You'll find out. I doubt I'll live long enough because I, I think it, it will probably take your span of years, probable span of years in the world for, for this to settle out. The, there's so much momentum in these different traditions now. And uh, I, I just try to beat the drum for mutual respect, harmony, and some degree of dialogue, but mostly mutual respect and harmony. You know. Yeah. Well, that is what that was our our goal here today and I think we accomplished that and that's part of what having conversations like this is about for me is having all these discussions and then the people listening to it I think especially and being exposed to all these different ideas will naturally incorporate different pieces that speak to them and from that will create some sort of synthesis. Um yeah. and just to go back to something we were saying, one thing I've thought about the history of astrology is that that break in the tradition that Rob talked about in the 18th and 19th century, I feel like was almost necessary in order for modern astrology to reconstitute itself in such a radically different way, in such a radically different orientation that there was almost a necessity to have that break so that it could bring in some of that new energy and some of those changes. And it's fascinating that you know, there's a few different like schools of astrology or types of modern astrology that developed yeah. as a result of that. And yours is yes. one of them. I mean, others are are things like Rick Tarnas's school, yeah. which is more of a modern archetypal astrology, and it doesn't have the same sort of philosophical or spiritual backdrop, but it has some similar elements in terms of the psychological focus or the archetypal focus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Beautiful work. Yeah, but there wasn't as much. It's interesting in the history of astrology, if you go back through the philosophical and religious stuff, that astrology has been much more practical in its orientation for most of the ancient traditions. Yeah. Even in the traditions like in India or ancient Greece, um, there were much more practical questions about like this life. And at least as far as the texts that survive, there's not a lot of discussion about the philosophical meaning or implications of all of this. And that's an interesting element that has happened in 20th century astrology. And an interesting thing that your astrology represents is the attempt to bring and try to answer some broader philosophical and metaphysical questions with astrology and bring those to the forefront in the discussion rather than purely focusing on the immediate sort of life questions, practically speaking, of like, when yeah. will I get married? When will yeah. I get the job? Or, or what have you. But instead, Talking about some of the broader ideas of meaning and purpose in terms of the person's life. Mm -hmm. Bullseye. Yeah, that's that's what it's about now. I've often wondered, and you, you'd be in a better position than me probably to respond to this, but uh, I, I, it's 
generally understood that there were secret traditions, uh, esoteric traditions, the Eleusinian mysteries, you know, etc., et uh, Tibetan texts that were only revealed to the students, you know, the disciples. And I've I've often wondered, just speculatively, if uh, if there actually had been a tradition of a more metaphysical, esoteric astrology that got lost because of uh, its own secrecy, the victim of its own secrecy, that the texts were destroyed, the people that carried the traditions orally died off. You know, I I don't know, but I've uh, given the the richness of the metaphysical traditions of humanity for the last uh, 100,000 years or so, you know, going back into shamanism, and, and given the, the relatively long history of some kind of astrology, uh, it's hard to believe they, they never spoke to each other or came together. Yeah, no, I think there, there was. I mean, I talk about it a little bit in my book, how in some of the texts we, we, that did survive, we can see traces of that, like Vedius Valens, for example, Asks the reader to swear an oath to keep his teachings secret and to not to share them with the unlearned, the uninitiated. And he's drawing on a set of earlier source texts from authors who didn't survive and who wrote their texts sometimes in a way that was cryptic or that was coded so that the, the knowledge couldn't be like easily learned to somebody that didn't know like the secret terminologies and things like that. So there were probably some. Traditions and texts where we can see just the traces of a sort of mystery tradition in astrology. But what some of most of the texts that survive are practical manuals about how to do astrology. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have a lot of surviving discussions about the underlying metaphysical metaphysics or other things like that. We just have little bits and pieces of it. Yeah. But, yeah. but you're right, there probably would have been something, especially in the Platonic tradition. It's it's hard for me to believe that there wouldn't have been. Some astrologer that talked about it partially within the context of um, past lives, just based on, like I was saying earlier, Plato's Timaeus and the myth of Ur specifically. I think I misspoke earlier and said it was in the Timaeus, but it's actually in the myth of Ur where he has this beautiful, you know, sort of um, metaphor or story. I, I don't know how to describe it, just but just about this cycle of reincarnation and souls being on the outskirts of the solar system before. Being born and traveling towards incarnation, and then yeah. picking lives by casting lots yeah. before going into birth, and um, that must have been part of the philosophical backdrop for at least some of those astrologers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I love hearing this. I, I, uh, you're you're much more of a scholar than I am uh, about the history of astrology, but this is it confirms uh, an intuition I've always had at the, the risk of sounding. Completely crazy. I I wrote actually wrote about this in the, at the end of yesterday's sky. I I've I've had this inexplicable, indefensible feeling that that I have been remembering this kind of astrology rather than creating it. And you know I'm I'm aware of how nuts that would sound to many people. So I would never attempt to defend this, but. I'm I'm happy enough to to just own it as a subjective experience that that I, my intuition is that that I I learned this stuff that I teach now in prior lives it probably as part of a secret tradition my south node of the moon Scorpio cusp of the twelfth house and and so uh, 
and it's good to distance from the South Node, so I make fun of it a little bit. Here's, here's how I, I, I make fun of it, that in past lives, I knew the secret handshake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. It's it's you know it's good to kind of get past it that way, not make it this big woo woo sacred thing anymore. But but to to name the the vanity of of uh, you know I have special knowledge and and you don't you know and to just not be caught up in in that game anymore. But I my chart suggests maybe I I had exposure to such secret teachings through that reading of the South Node. Yeah, uh, well, you and I share that South Node and in, in Scorpio in common. So I'm going to mm. test you at the next time I see you at a conference to see if you do remember the secret handshake. So we'll, we'll find, find <laughs> out next time we're in, next time we're in person. It's a deal, Chris. Um, okay, I think that's probably a great note. We could keep going all day, and this has actually been a really lovely discussion. Um, yes, I've maybe, enjoyed it. Yeah, maybe we should wrap it up. Um, so you've written at least half a dozen books. How many books have you written at this point? Uh, I'd say twelve or thirteen. Uh, I, I I wrote a book about synastry, which I I then rewrote in two volumes, so the the math gets a little funny. Uh, but but thirteen is probably right. I I've just finished work on uh, the book of fire, which is uh, uh, about the three fire signs, the planets that rule them, and the associated houses. And it's volume one of an element series. I'm eight chapters into the book of Earth now. Saturn passing through Capricorn and having just turned 70, uh, it just felt right to climb a mountain. So four books. You know? Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, That's a lot. If I were your age, I, I probably would have jumped off a bridge rather than <laughs> commit to four books. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that is a lot. Um, but Today's discussion, the one that we uh, most of this and large parts of this discussion are partially based on your book from 2012, which is titled Yesterday's Sky, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. That's yeah. your primary book where you really not just outline part of your philosophy about astrology and reincarnation, but also go into some interpretive steps about how you incorporate that into actual chart work. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Yesterday's Sky and the Inner Sky, my first book. Are like bookends. The it's a in, inner sky. I wrote pretty close to my first Saturn return. Yesterday's sky pretty close to my second Saturn return, which strikes mm -hmm. me as kind of helpful. That that the uh, inner sky is basically about the analysis of the personality, which we see as the vehicle for the evolution of the soul. Yesterday's sky is about understanding the reason the soul has incarnated and its evolutionary intentions and. When uh, somebody wants to start my teaching program, I'd say internalize those two books, and you'll have the whole system: the the dialogue between the 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 soul's history and the present vehicle. That's the entire system. Right, brilliant. And but despite that, with the two books, you also are really well known for your apprenticeship program, and that's been something a lot of astrologers, even a lot of notable astrologers. I mean, that's been something. At some point, maybe in a separate episode, I'd love to talk to you about that idea of lineage because yeah. in the astrological tradition, in, in the West at least, lineage just died out in the 18th yeah. and 19th century, and we didn't have that transmission from teacher to student anymore yeah. for generations like we had at one point for centuries. But people like yourself, through your apprenticeship program, you've actually taught uh, hundreds of astrologers, and some of them have themselves gone on to become notable astrologers in the field over the past few decades and then begin 
teaching students of their own and so on and so forth. So you've yeah. sort of re uh, launched or reignited some of the the astrological tradition and lineages in some sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's I'm I'm excited about that and proud of it. And it's it's one of my favorite subjects. I I relate it in my system to uh, sixth house and Virgo, the servant kind of symbolism. And uh, I've uh, I I love. Uh, the sixth house and Virgo have gotten the reputations of of being kind of boring. If if you do a talk about the sixth house at an astrology conference, nobody comes, you know. And it's like we we've lost this the soul of it. The the most exciting part of it is this idea of lineage of transmission. The the way you can simply sit with somebody who has knowledge and and you you get some of it. Like right. I shook hands. With Eric Clapton once, you know the the, the great British guitar player, and mm. got to meet him, had a five minutes with him, shook hands, and I carried my hand home and got out my guitar, you know, <laughs> and you know I'm laughing, but I really did it, you know, and and I felt like it helped me to touch Eric Clapton, and I'm I'm aware of how crazy that sounds, but I'm also aware that go back a thousand years, and that did not sound crazy. You know, we've lost something so exciting. Lineage, I'd love to talk with you about it sometime. Definitely. Uh, well, we'll save that for next time because there's something special about that. And that's something you, more than a number of other astrologers I know, have really done an amazing job with. Um, so, yeah, people can find out more information about your training programs. What's your website again? What's the address? Forest Astrology, two R's in forest, forestastrology.com. Okay, brilliant. And I'll put a link to that in the description page for this episode. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me today. I really appreciate Welcome, it. Welcome, Chris. I've really enjoyed it too. I'm glad it finally happened. Yeah, me too. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. I appreciate it very much. Um, and I guess that's it. So we'll see you next time. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm.